This is Everyday Photography Every Day, where you get to listen in on a chat between a photographer, that's me, and a regular human. That's me. With an eye on making your pictures amazing. No technical stuff, no talk of gear or software, just photography for the love of it. I'm Suzanne Fritz Hansen, enthusiastic iPhone picture taker. And I'm Michael Rubin, photographer, founder of Neo Modern, and Grumpy Old Man, and we're in San Francisco tonight. Welcome. Hey, Suzanne. Hey, Ruben. How's it going? <laughs> it's good. I'm, I got to say, I was jealous. I had to hear from Alina that you were traveling in Greece and around the world and stuff. And Yes. Yeah. I had an amazing time. We were there for a friend's wedding and I've never been to Greece before, but it was yeah, yeah. truly just stunning. Like the the light, I mean, you can probably tell from my bronze and glow. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really bad podcast joke. Everyone's yes, like, yeah, yeah, annoying. Um, yes. Just for the record, I'm not bronze and or not at all. that much tanner than normal, but like Milky for me, white, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, the freckles, they're, they're connecting. Okay. Um, but uh, no, I mean, the light is different. The, the Like the blues are so blue and then the whites are so bright. It's just, it's, it's, it's just a good reminder to travel because you really start to see, you know, you see differently. You, the you different landscapes see. inspire you in different ways. And it, it's just been, uh, yeah, it was a really beautiful trip. Had an amazing, amazing time. I've never understood the the, the statement that comes up a lot when people say, like they say it about Santa Fe too, like, oh my God, the light. And you yeah. just said that about Greece. Is there actually a characteristic of the light that's different? I mean, is it is it a measurable, quantifiable kind of, oh, the light there is bluer because of this? Or I mean, I, I know a physicist I can call who's in the next room. Um, oh. There actually is, yes. There, <laughs> oh. there, there really is. It's about like the angle of refraction in where we, we had a conversation about this while we were in Greece <laughs> about... <laughs> Uh, different like color perceptions and the placement of the light and the angles and things like that. So, I mean, if we, if we want to dive in, um, well, maybe we this absolutely is a, can. This is like our, <laughs> the, I think this is going to be our science episode. Our science yeah. episode? <laughs> our phone a friend episode? <laughs> phone a friend episode. Um, well, let me catch you up. Like I've, I mean, I haven't gone to Greece, but I had my in-person workshop last week. Oh yeah, right. How did that go? It was great. It's really, really fun to have people around. You know, yeah, like, you it's a, been a long time. A good group. You were in person in real life. I was in person. Um, the workshop was primarily up at the work, Santa Fe Workshops <laughs> campus, but I had a day here at, at the house where we got to dig into the pictures in the collection, which is really fun. Uh, it's like being a kid in the candy store. Almost literally, that's what it's like. You just like, oh my god, let's look at some. <laughs> Cartier Brissons. Oh my goodness. So anyway, that was really fun. It was a good class, uh, inspired me, you know, and it always, it, the best thing about a class is that people ask questions and you sit there thinking, I don't know the answer to that question. I think I need to read up on that or something. Uh, yeah. And and the timing is good. I have another workshop next week, although it's over Zoom. Um, is it is the same kind of, well, obviously if it's over Zoom, it's not the same structure, but is the structure that you uh, did last week. What was that? It, that I mean, when we talked about it, it seemed like it was a little bit different than some of like the haiku things that you've done in the in the past. How well, is you, it? How's it different? You get to do real. I mean, you just get to interact at such a higher level that people don't ever start going down a path in the wrong direction. Like you see their stuff immediately and say because you're taking pictures or they have a question or you you know there was a moment where we're standing around and there's this giant um, ceramic vase on top of a huge tree stump and 
it's just a, a weird looking thing. And it's a good ex- excuse just to be like, everybody come over here. Everyone shoot this and try yeah. to shoot it in a way that's different than the person standing next to you. Uh, try to shoot in a way that isn't just an object, but it's something about the moment of us being here. Uh, I don't know. You can give a specific kind of uh, in the moment instruction. Everyone can experience it. You can look immediately at the pictures and that's fun. Like that's a totally fun way to do a workshop. And I'm so jazzed. So I'm doing one in Wisconsin in the spring mm-hmm. uh, at the Wild Rice Retreat, and that should be cool. And my favorite thing that has just happened is uh, I just got invited to talk about haiku at the Santa Fe Zen Center, having their sort of haiku festival next spring. Oh, very cool. Yeah, they were cautious to vet me because, you know, clearly I'm not a Buddhist and I don't, I'm, they don't really know what I know. And so there was a moment of sitting around where the, I'm getting a, kind of grilled on well, what are you going to say? <laughs> what's what's really your yeah. position? But yeah. it, was, it was fun and I'm, I'm excited about that. So things are happening. It's fun to be in Santa Fe. And, um, and, and actually what I've been doing for uh, like almost a month now, at least almost a month, is uh, I got in. I got my invitation into Dali. Oh uh, yeah, uh huh. And that is a time suck. Oh <laughs> my god, it's like it's just there's nothing like it. You just sit around and, and and I don't even know why I'm doing it. It's it's almost akin to why do you take pictures? I mean, I'm seeing oh, what it will do, you know, with different prompts. And for for those of you listening who don't know what Dali is, um. Well, uh, it's sort of the hot thing right now in the imaging and graphics world. It is a, an artificial intelligent uh, agent. It's a software product. You go online and it is a designed, trained on visual imagery. They've mm-hmm. given it tons of photographs that are heavily tagged. I think they said there was something like 13 billion tags of some kind. And the result is that you can literally describe an image in text and mm-hmm. it will draw it. It'll give you the best version of that. And you know, and and so I sort of spent a week taking, uh, doing like portraits of friends, basically, where I think about them. Um, so there was one uh, that I did was an Andrew Wyeth painting of a sweet girl in a busy city with little birds all around her talking to her. Yeah. And in fifteen seconds, it comes back with what is effectively a Four. painting. Well, and it comes up with four different images. That's right. Four kind of takes on the idea. And each is remarkable. And in one second, you go through this and you are certain that the world of illustration is upended. Well, I mean, I think that that I would say this actually will be really interesting to talk about because, I mean, I think what industry or what sort of um, discipline within design is going to be the most sort of vulnerable, because I think that what you're describing is like a creative director's dream, you know, and we uh, actually, I'll tell you a little bit about like my, what my team did is we we do these like opening exercises every, every week as a creative team. And um, it's sort of, you know, up to different, you know, whoever is assigned that week to kind of come up with what we want to do. So two weeks ago, uh, the team did uh, a dolly. So using, uh, using AI to create um, imagery. And then we did a gallery of all the different things. Mm. Um, And I'll talk about that actually in, in a second, but I think, what this is like a this is a creative directors like this is what we do we come up with how many words how articulate can we describe something and i'll give just a couple examples of some of the different descriptors that like that we'd used one was white scaffolding structure in the middle of a field or 
an exploded view of an alien engine in photorealistic style or <laughs> Mies van der Rohe lake house, south facing, wooded lot, <laughs> detached garage with covered walkway to the house, lots of windows. And so just like being as descriptive as, as possible as a creative director, and then you get to, immediately you get this sort of feedback that comes back. And it's it's not it's not what I like to say. It doesn't have to be right, but we just don't want it to be wrong because it's something that you start from and that you can react to. And then it helps clarify your language and whether that's search term language or it's creative direction for the designer that sort of takes it from there. It is a phenomenal tool that is just, it is, it's like, it's like addictive. It's like, it, it, it's it, so it, compelling that you are just like, well, what if, what does it do if I do this? What's so cool is like just seeing the images that they came back with and they're incredible. We, I mean, we use mid journey, but it's really similar to Dali, but it's so powerful. I just, I really would love to know more about it and how it's working, where it's going. Like it's, it's absolutely fascinating. You know what? Um, why don't we bring uh, one of an expert in because we oh, you know someone that well, this really yeah, is a phone a friend episode. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the friend zone. My buddy Aaron zone. worked with me at Adobe, or actually, I worked with him at Adobe. He's a, a researcher there in you know visual science and uh, computational photography and things associated with that. And he was the first person who ever said the word Dolly out loud that I heard that made me think, "What is that? Why can't I?" I can't, I do that myself. So he would have, yes. he'll have things to say. He'll have more things to say because he's in computer vision. So he's going to, uh, let me, let me get him on the phone. Let's bring him in. Okay. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. Give me a sec. This is Aaron. Aaron, Suzanne, Suzanne. Hi, Aaron. Aaron. <laughs> Hi. Nice to meet you. <laughs> just that throwing, was so seamless. I didn't... <laughs> well, I just thought I'd throw you in here, Aaron, because, you know, that's the way we, that's the way we roll. Okay. Um, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I, I'm good. We, I just we just came on here and I was sort of catching Suzanne up on my week and and uh, you know I got into Dolly a couple of weeks ago and really I don't know if it, it can be scientifically described but this is a narcotic tool. <laughs> How long have you been on this and what's your association? A creative with this? narcotic. <laughs> You've been more than microdosing. <laughs> Do I need to call you doctor? You're Doctor Hertzman, right? This is your okay. No. Sure. Uh, All right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so what's your connection to this product? Do you, you... Uh, Well, I have no formal connection. I mean, I've been interested in um, computer tools for art and creativity for many decades and worked on them for a long time. Um, and this seems like the latest, most exciting uh, use of, of, of these things, you know, how people are combining data with um, you know, creative applications to like you know, make new tools and new kinds of images that never existed before. Is it really, is it really new? Like, is this, I mean, how new is this really being able to do what we're doing? Um, well, you know, everything is in a way evolution, but it really feels like there's a, a jump from the previous step. So there's, you know, there's this long history of gradual progress and like, Deep Dream was exciting, and you know, some of the stuff I worked on before that I thought was cool. Um, you know, you can see this evolution of like you know, patch match and Photoshop, which was based on other research. But the the jump from GANs, which were kind of like the most recent really awesome thing, to this feels significant in that um, they they capture such a wide range of visual styles, and it's also yeah. uh, text prompted um, that it, it really feels like now people can really see the potential of it. Wow. And so what have you been like, what does research on Dolly look like? Or are you just screwing around like we are? Or do you do actually uh, do real smart things? Uh, you know, potato, potato. Um, 
Um, I, for me, like I've sort of stopped myself. I don't, I'm not really developing these kinds of albums so much anymore, although I'm you know, around the people who are. Um, for me, what I'm, I'm most interested in thinking about the nature of the, these tools in the creative process and how they you change how we think about art and how we think about uh, creativity. There's this huge history of mm-hmm. people, you know, like in photography is the evergreen, you know, uh, uh, reference point for how technology changes the way people understand art and the way they make they make images. And I think this is another one of those moments. And so it's been fun to just experiment. What exactly does that look like? And what are the things the artist does and how do you interact with this tool? Wow. Uh, I mean, for me, the, the things that I was, you know, so right before this came out, I wrote a paper where I was thinking through um, the, you know, how does the creative process, how do we model the creative process computationally? Because um, lots of people who work in the space are like, you know, AI researchers kind of say, well, the, the artist has an intent, they have a goal to make an image. And so they, they, then they execute on what that goal is. They make the, you know, Van Gogh meant to like to, to, to display this thing. And so he, he made a painting for that. And in my own experience, you know, experimenting with painting, like it's not at all how the creative process works. You don't start <laughs> with the intention. The intention, if it's there, is something that you add on at the end. And mm-hmm. reading about what artists do, um, like I found a lot of artists who describe their own process in the same way. Like, you know, Francis Bacon talks about, I start out with an intent, uh, but, you know, but then that quickly gives way to exploration. And so, you know, and then, uh, you know, thinking a lot about that, you know, the thinking about computational models for what would that, what would that, that process look like because our tools are not creative in the same way that humans are right now. And then Dolly comes out and it just feels like I type in a bunch of stuff and here are like 10 really cool images that are like, I had never, no idea to how to produce these things. And um, it feels like this thing is a better painter than I am. In fact, it feels like it's a better painter than anyone who's ever lived because <laughs> you do this stuff. Um, but then you quickly realize its limitations and its shortcomings. And it's much more of a, you know, a, a tool for exploration and a thing that you know, provokes ideas that leads to one idea to another rather than just a thing which is so amazing yeah. on its own. But for- I think- Oh, go on, go on. I was going to say, I think what is interesting is, is I've also been watching just kind of the development of AI and how we are, you know, we're teaching AI to paint and you sort of see, okay, eventually they come up with something that, yeah, it is really interesting. It is quite cool. But I think what separate, what I'm really excited about with Dolly is just the amount of sort of, um, not control, but it's just, it's like the launch pad. It's like the starting off where I get to see, honestly, precision of language and like what, how, what I'm looking to see in an image. Um, and I won't say photograph or I guess it's more mm-hmm. of an illustration, but what I'm looking to see and how that actually sort of springboards it into going down this like development path. And so there's, it's sort of like a collaboration. It's like a tennis match, you know, where you get to volley it over, you get to see what they come back with. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to nuance my request a little bit to send it back over. And there's sort of a trial and error process where yeah. it almost feels like the creative skill is in your language skills at describing things in ways that are going to trigger it to either be not doing what you thought of or doing exactly what you thought of and yeah. somewhere in the middle of those things. You know, so uh, I mean, I'm certain I don't, uh, maybe you've heard about this, uh, Aaron, but uh, I imagine if I was an illustrator, I would be sort of freaking out like that this is i think the initial response is oh my god i'm being replaced by robots or some some version of that and to some degree it's true i mean i was illustrating a website for my brother and you know i'm not going to go out and hire an illustrator generally speaking i don't have a budget i'm just an independent kind of guy but oh i'd like to see a groundhog playing a 1957 fender stratocaster uh painted by you know <laughs> you know paul clay and it just does it and I think that's pretty cool. I'm done. You know, I don't need to hire anyone. But I think if I was an illustrator, 
they're going through the process that architects, editors, every, every creative industry has gone through as computers have come into it where they feel like they're going to lose their jobs. And somehow it just morphs. It just shifts into another focus. But it's still, I don't know, editors who cut celluloid were very unhappy with nonlinear editing and computerized editing. It was antithetical to the way they worked. And yet, oh, I want to hear what Aaron's going to say, and then yeah, okay, I want to jump okay, in on this. Okay. Like this is, I see it as a tool, but Aaron, please jump in. I, I really can't wait to hear what your response is to that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because I, I was just in a panel with a bunch of architects who were just so excited about it, and the principal from Zaha Hadid Architects was saying was showing he was generating all these Zaha Hadid images with Midjourney, and it's so excited, it's so useful to them, and they don't care about the fact that it's like using Zaha Hadid style, which is like their brand. Um, they're working in a very different space because for them, it's just conceptual design. It's not the final product. Um, I think that, you know, there's, you know, there's definitely some, you know, valid concern here. I think, um, the, I still feel with all of these tools, um, they're so exciting at first, um, deep dream, which is like kind of the first kind of AI uh, tool that became made a lot of splash was really cool for like a few days or a week. And then GANs became kind of the next big thing, which were really exciting for about uh, six months or a year. And it's just like, you can make all these things and people are doing all this art with it. And now with the exception of a few artists, it's kind of like, okay, that looks like a GAN image. And you know, it's hard to predict, but it, it feels a little bit like a lot of these things. Like right now, there's a longer period because they're so powerful of like the, all these mid-journey images look so cool and dreamy. But you know, in, in a year or two, people are going to say, oh, well, it looks like a mid-journey image. And I think people will visually get more sophisticated to recognizing like, okay, everything looks the same now. Um, and ultimately, I think the you know, good art and good illustration, good design is hard. It's something that you have to engage with. You have to do something different than whatever else is doing, different yeah. from what the tools drive you to do. And um, that you know, there is going to be definitely some uh, disruption in how people work and how people interact with these tools, but it's still going to require skilled professionals. I think the other place where, um, you know, another example where everyone thought this technology was going to replace artists was computer animation in the 80s. Everyone thought like, you know, Catmull and Lasser are like developing these algorithms that are going to put animators out of work. In reality, there's so much work for animators now as a result of those technology. Yeah. Uh, I think mm -hmm. similar things are going to happen here. Because it, it augments, it, it helps you. It's like, again, that that launch pad, that starting off point. I, I mean, I think just with creative ideas in general, yes, there are certain people that are going to um, settle for the lowest apple on the tree. Mm -hmm. First thing off the, off the, off the, Branch, great. I'm done. That's all I really need. But I think for uh, more sophisticated and as like just as a kind of a community and as a culture, um, I love what you said, Aaron, is like we'll start to recognize these as like, you know, Dolly style images or what, whatever they are that it allows us to say to go further, to stretch further and get those, you know, extra delicious ones with those extra bits of sunshine. Isn't that the, the thing that they said about desktop publishing when it first came out, which was like, this is going to create so much horrible typesetting and horrible publications and all this. But the hope is that it opens the market so much and makes it so accessible that you find the gems, that there are people who would not have been able to publish without it. And now they can. So yes, you have more noise, but you also have more good stuff and you really are opening the market. And I'm imagining it's going to be some version of that. I mean, of course, we all remember when Photoshop came up with like lens flare and suddenly every image had this kind of lens flare in it. And at first it was cool. And about 40 seconds later, you just got tired of it. And yeah, I think that's what you're going to see here, that the the Dali is the first iteration. And then real designers, real illustrators start there and figure out where they want to go. They, they're not done. It didn't replace them. They just now have more creative options and 
you know, it's harder. Their work just got harder because they have more possibilities instead of just, I know how to paint this way. So this is what it's going to look like. Right. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, well, I want to bring it back a little bit to photography. Um, I mean, Aaron, I've read uh, one of the, the papers that you've written, and I kind of the opening line is about how photography is sort of understood um, and how people are sort of finding meaning and use the term picture perception. Uh, would you be able, like, would you be willing to kind of unpack um, that term a little bit and and talk about how photographs actually sort of convey um, information to a viewer? Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I have I mean, to get out of my thoughts. Well, let me read you the quote from the paper on this okay. because it really be resonated, yeah, yeah. It resonated for me as well. And, yeah. and hopefully this is what you're thinking of, Suzanne, because this is what I had written <laughs> down. You wrote, uh, and I'm quoting Aaron here, research that truly aims to understand picture perception should not treat photography and representation and representational painting as entirely distinct categories. Likewise, perception of photography should not be treated as equivalent to real-world vision. In important ways, viewing a photograph is more like viewing a painting than viewing the real world. That was exactly uh, it, yes. That was it? <laughs> yeah, literally, that was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and just for some context, that paper was written for a visual percept perceptual psychology audience, but I think that the message is something which is... Um, relevant for lots of people. Um, I think there's a common, common, um, there's a commonplace assumption that looking at a photograph is like looking at the real world. And that when an artist paints a picture, they're just drawing what they had an image they have in their head. And I don't think either of those things are remotely true. And I think, um, you know, pictures are something that we as a species have evolved to create um, over, we've been doing it for 40,000 years. It's a way we communicate with each other. Uh, it's, we, you know, arrange symbols and, um, uh, you know, depictions of light and depictions of the world in ways that communicate various different kinds of visual information. And a photograph is just like a picture in that respect. No one looks at a photograph and thinks I am looking into a window into the real world. They, they think, um, you know, at least subconsciously, they're seeing an image that was made by a person using a some technology. Um, mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, so the art of active painting is, an exp is, is, in a way, I think painting is a lot like storytelling. When you tell a story, you have to think about how how do you order sentences? Which information do you give first? Which information comes later? later what, what do you leave out? When you create a picture, whether by painting, drawing, or photography, um, you're doing the exact same thing and making choices of what things to include, how to arrange them, how, what, uh, what kind of emotional you know, valence to give to them. Um, and the illusion that photography gives is that it's a mechanical process. You press a button and it produces through automation. Um, uh, th that illusion is, is false. I'm reminded and I'm forced to read this other quotation, which I'm certain you've heard, but from Ed Weston's Day Books in 1932. And the passage, it could be the opening of your article practically. Uh, Weston said, um, photography is not all seeing in the sense that the eyes see. Our vision, a binocular one, is in a continuous state of flux while the camera captures and fixes forever a single isolated condition of the moment. Besides, we use lenses of various focal lengths to purposely exaggerate actual seeing. We often overcorrect color for the same reason. In printing, we carry on our willful distortion of fact by using contrasty papers, which give us results quite different from the scene or object as it was in nature. This, we must agree, is all legitimate procedure, but it is not seeing literally. It's done with a reason with creative imagination. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a great quote. 
And that's what, I mean, that's what you're talking about here, but you actually go into the details of how the, what, what decisions, uh, not just photographers, but camera manufacturers, paper manufacturers, uh, AI developers are, yeah. are weaving into the software, which con is constructing these images, whether we are, are cognizant of it or not, it feels like a straight shot, but your, your paper on a linear perspective blew my mind. I completely did not realize the degree that cameras don't capture the perspective the way you're thinking, and we have to kind of work around that. Can you talk a little about that? Sure. Yeah. So for me, it was the experience began when I, you know, I got back into painting and drawing a lot in the last few years. And at first I would you know, draw a picture of a thing and also take a photograph at the same time. So I have it for reference later. And later I would look at them and the, the proportions and the, the composition look really different between my painting and the photograph. And I would think uh, I'm not a very good artist. It doesn't look like the real photograph. <laughs> And, you know, I kept having this experience over and over. And then I would go out and I would like look at the photograph and compare it to what I see in the world on my phone at the moment I'm there. And I think actually this photo doesn't capture my experience of this space. I think one example a lot of people can relate to is photographing the moon at night. The moon looks really small in the photograph compared to um, uh, how you experience it. But this is all lots of times. I mean, outside of the landscape, I see a building off in the distance. I photograph it, the building looks tiny. And I started reading some of the perception literature. And this is artists in particular that I work with now, Rob Pepperell, who's written about this quite a bit. This notion that we our experience expands the thing that we're looking at, and that becomes kind of larger. Um, and that in, in a way that was just not represented by a conventional linear perspective. And Ooh, I want you to repeat yeah. that. That was beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> experience expands our perception. Well, say that one more time because that was so, that is so powerful. Yeah. Well, and I mean that in maybe, you know, not in a very um, spiritual way, but really uh, when you were looking at a thing, you have an experience of that thing being very large in your perception. If you draw a picture that the thing you're, you're looking at at that moment becomes yeah. much larger than the stuff around it. Isn't that uh, like the way I had always thought of that was that the brain sort of filters stuff out. Like we see something that looks very clear, a simple, elegant scene, this beautiful tree. And when you take a picture, you get all the visual noise in the background and all around it that somehow you were not aware of. So the picture feels like, you know, it didn't capture what you saw, mm -hmm. right? Even though it quite literally captured what was there, but your brain doesn't see what you saw. Like your brain is doing something. It doesn't uh, have the same feeling yeah. as, as how it felt to you that it looked. It's just capturing this sort of, you know, this flattened version. And, and photographers are always using that expression of I'm trying to I'm not trying to capture the scene. I'm trying to capture what I experienced of the scene. Yeah. So I darken that. I blur that out. Yeah. Uh, I Photoshop out something and I'm making it more the way I remember it. It's more actual, even though I Photoshopped the scene. Of course, I go into like I, I freak out when I hear this. But, you know, I would say that Photoshop and Dali are just a, on a continuum of ways we can modify and change things to be the way we want them to be. And uh, are they photography? That's another, we can come back to that question. Um, anyway, so the brain is messing with the scene and and painting seems like it's you're just putting in what you want to be there. Photography, you have to take out what you don't want to be there. Is that was that right? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, you're, you're making all these choices. You're telling a story. And if you use a camera rather than painting it yourself, 
there's a lot of choices baked into the camera lens design and the, the imaging process that it just decides, okay, things will be projected in a particular way. Tones will be mapped a particular way. Smartphones are making all these decisions about tone mapping that replacing, you know, modeling old dodge and burn techniques. Um, and in our visual experience, we have this illusion of, you know, awareness of the world and seeing everything, you know, directly unfiltered when the brain is actually very, very selective about what it actually perceives and uh, preserves and, and what we actually experience in the world. And everything that we create, whether with Dolly or with photographs or with painting are specific choices about what to, you know, storytelling about on, on in 2D about this that's somehow related to this experience I had or want to create. I love that you you talked about sort of drawing a picture and then taking a photograph at the same time. Can I ask where you even started do, why you started doing that, how you had that idea? I, I just I think that that's such a cool like thought of like here's you know here's the photograph of the scene, but here's what I was remembering from it. Where did you get the idea to do that? Well, I first just started doing it because like for me, drawing is something I would do kind of in stolen moments. I'm like, I have 15 minutes before a meeting and I just want to draw a picture. And then maybe later I'm, I want to keep working on it more when I have more time. So I would always have the picture on hand. And then... Um, uh, so it was know, really to but, facilitate the painting. It was it was like to be the backup for the painting. It wasn't the... The, the drawing wasn't the backup for the photograph. That's right. And I also have a lot of friends who, who work in, you know, computer graphics and computer science. They say, oh, save all, all your photographs so we can train a model in your style. <laughs> <laughs> Did they? Um, no, I, I don't think the technology is ready for that. I do, by the way, I really, I mean, you've been drawing for a few, only a few years. It seems like I've been watching your progress or whatever you'd call it on social media. And you really have, I mean, you've radically improved, if that's the right word. They just look so much cooler now. Um, well, what do you, you what are you doing different? Well, the short answer to that is I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, the long answer is, <laughs> is, is, is quite a bit longer. Um, so I, um, in, in college, uh, more than 20 years ago, I double majored in art and computer science. So I, I took, I spent a lot of time in the studio and outside doing um, hand painting, uh, with, you know, drawing and painting, watercolor, oil, and so on. And then, you know, the practicalities of painting with real paint uh, is, are so difficult that I basically stopped doing it when I graduated. And then I bought an iPad um, in, uh, three years ago. And then it just, I just fell in love with it. Okay, now I want to draw all the time. So, so the first thing, so I, I, I can't answer, but one thing I was doing, I was just doing all the time. It was like an addiction for a while. And so, you know, like any skill, practice, 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 practice. I also had, you know, some, um, uh, you know, all of the work I've done research and, you know, learning about art since then provides, you know, maybe a little conceptual framework for things to try. And like, I should, what happens if I do this? Or, you know, in also being a little fearless, because I think a lot of people are just afraid that they're bad artists and therefore they shouldn't spend time doing it. And I'm like, I'm not afraid, so I'll just keep doing it. And so I could you know, improve uh, and keep, even if my results didn't look, or your drawings didn't look very good. Can One of our previous guests had said something. Um, they said, if you love what you do, you'll get great at it. Mm -hmm. And I, I love that. Like that, that's one of those like little, I don't know, quotes that's, that always sticks with me because it's so true. You love it. You're going to get good. Can you give Dolly or any of these engines your drawing and tell it to make a photograph out of the drawing, like make a photorealistic image, interpreting your drawing in some way back into a photo? Um, there are some tools that kind of do that, but not well enough that I, it wouldn't work for my stuff. Okay. It's an interesting idea. I mean, I I tried to experiment with Dali. I I, I took famous photographs mm -hmm. of that you know I have sitting here, and I described them as clearly as I could to see what it would generate as a photograph based on my description of a of a photograph. And then I shifted it. I tried to Yulesman, 
which was very funny. So well, the first one I did was I'd like to just have a, I think I picked a 57 Chevy under an oak tree by Ansel Adams. And then a moment later, I was like, oh, wait, by Jerry Yulesman. And it put the tree in the car. Like that was, oh, interesting. Its, that, that was its move. I don't know what it's been trained on, but I'm realizing the degree that like, as this gets a little bit better, these pictures really can be photorealistic and it really would be impossible to determine whether this was a, a a live action again it's it's like photoshop i don't know what i'm i don't know what that art is i don't think this is photography no matter how photorealistic it is but it for it's one of the reasons that i start drawing these really hard lines around what i call pure seeing although you're really screwing with my idea of pure seeing because even pure seeing is not really pure seeing but there is some attribute of what i would call pure photography where you're pointing a camera at a scene even though we know it's not truth it is a willful distortion of fact. It's also of the moment. And and everything in the frame was really in the frame. When I pushed that button, I didn't go and add something because that's a different art form. That's illustration. I, I get to choose what I'm juxtaposing in this illustration, which I don't always in a photograph. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it but all of these technologies make me want to have a harder boundary around what I think is photography. Yeah, I, I think it raises these questions of authenticity, which is something we care a lot about. Um, where, and I think the, the biggest issue, like one of the biggest problems computer art has faced is that I think when we, whenever we view art in any context, we want to know about the person who created it, where did it come from, what were the motivations. And if, when, if you just think, oh, the AI made it, then you're not learning anything about the person behind it. Um, and I think when you set those rules around photography, then you're really making a very strong statement about how your experience relates to the image. And so how, how we, how we can communicate or express ourselves or, um, you know, uh, how we interpret these images in such a way that is about people communicating, I think is a big open question. What are we looking at here, Suzanne? I was, I mean, this is what I was talking about in the beginning of the show of like what my team had done when we were playing around and just using the, you know, the, the, the descriptive words that we can do. I mean, Ruben, I love how you actually decided to describe a picture and then see what it came back with. And I mean, effectively, you're training yourself for like to get what you want. Mm -hmm. But these were, I mean... These look like photographs. These were the description. These were the terms that were used, like Mies van der Rohe Lake House, um, lots, lots of, of or lots of windows. Uh, oh my god, this but beautiful! This is what it came back with, and they're beautiful. But what's interesting is if you look closely, you recognize that things don't really match up. Like <laughs> this is like, for example, this one. Uh, we'll put these in the show notes, but. Uh -huh. This one in the top left, where there's inconsistencies between like the the this line doesn't actually line up with the uh -huh. width of what that window mullion is, and that the the lake is a little shifted and the colors, you know, are are different between the two. But or it's the a reflection. mood board. It's a mood board. It's right? a mood board. Yeah. It's a good place to start. Or, you know, alien craft and photo real alien engine and photorealistic <laughs> style, or white scaffolding structure in the middle of a field. Like these look like they could be real. Yeah. you know, at, at yeah. first blush. Wow. I mean, wow. I don't even know what to say. It's just, it, <laughs> it, it is illustration. It is, it is this art form that is independent of what photography is. It has to be. 
I'm going to lose my mind if people keep calling this stuff photography. And Photoshop- I don't think they're calling it photography, <laughs> but I mean, it is photorealistic. And I think that's where the challenge, I mean, Ruben, especially for you, where you're like, no, it's it was made in one frame, in one snapshot that actually existed. Mm-hmm. That's where you, I think, are really going to find um, your definite, you know, like like your worldview or your paradigm sort of challenged. I, I think I, you and I have not always been totally aligned on what mm-hmm. we see image creation being. Like mm-hmm. for me, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. It's about what is being created and what's being portrayed. Um, your line is like that goes to illustration. As it is. Altering it's, that image. it's illustration, of course. It, and Photoshop is that. Photoshop is illustration, no matter what you start with. That's academic, whether I started with a blank canvas or a photo that I'm modifying that or is if you started with words. I or mean, with, or with words, right? Yeah. It's an illustration. Uh, yeah, I mean, someone being provocative the other day. I was sitting with Maggie Taylor, who's famously a, an awesome Photoshop artist, um, and I think they were just trying to poke fun at us. They're like, "Ruben, is she an art? Is she a photographer?" You know, they're like making me say that. It's like, yes. And, and what did you and, say? And it feels like I'm. I don't want to be insulting. Like, no, of course she's not a photographer. You know, she's an artist. But that's she's not a. She's not doing what Cartier-Bresson does. It doesn't matter. I mean, every you look at the history of photography. There's tons of stuff. It's very broad, very inclusive. Whether it's a photogram by Man Ray or it's something else, they tend to lump all this stuff together. Yulesman and Irving Penn and Cartier-Bresson and Ansel Adams are in the same category. But I think that no longer applies. I think you have to be more specific. And the history of illustration goes back to Yulesman and people who were modifying photos in ways that they weren't taken. Uh, It's a fine line, though, because um, (laughs) and I'm actually going to quote Aaron on Aaron's paper. It's because there are choices that are made by the photographer on how they are adapting the light, just as they do in painting. I mean, this is Aaron, I'm going to quote you. Hopefully this isn't too nerdy, but such choices are mandatory. There's no single correct way to make a picture. Conventional photographs almost never display light as though the viewer were looking through a window. Like Those choices are being made to capture what is being highlighted. It's still a choice, uh, still a creative choice. It is. A, I'm not saying it's not a creative choice, but there's some, <laughs> something about, it's something about time. Can we just leave it at that? It's something about the moment. It's something about a moment as opposed to the image. And I, I can't go deeper than that, but yes, you can change the lighting and stuff related to that. But if those things weren't there, to put them there is to make something other than what the experience was. I uh, okay. I'm on a slippery. I'm on a bad place here. I can feel it. We'll Let's, we'll we'll let you we'll let I'm you just hang the sh- there for I'm a sec, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you on all this, Aaron? I mean, you're one of the deepest thinkers I know about photographic art on, on arts in general, and the this issue of mechanical creation of things and the artist's role and creativity, the algorithms around creativity. Like you think about this all day. Um, yeah, um, I mean, maybe I don't understand the, the the question. Like, I wouldn't consider this photography either. Um, although, if, if you want, <laughs> you know, but but here's here's a you know a situation. Maybe it challenges you a little bit. In uh, computer animated film, there is a role which is director of photography. Like in uh, Wally, the director of photography is I'm, I'm blanking on his name or his consultant, the uh, the photographer from the Coen Brothers movies. Of do you uh, Roger Deakins? Oh, think- oh, awesome. Okay. And, and he was maybe he was a consultant on Wally, but they like they were very much inspired by his his uh, te- you know technique. Um, but you know, there's a person whose job it is to like look through these 3D models and you know and figure out how to set up the lighting and set up the cameras in such a way to to, to tell a story they're they're telling in, in this virtual 3D space. Um, 
that said, I, I, I wouldn't consider this photography either, even though it, it has a lot of analogies to it. I think what is, I mean, is interesting is uh, actually a, a friend of mine that we've also had in the show, a, you know, Jeff Braskate, who works on the camera app for Apple, his background is actually in video games and the lighting in like in video games to make that photorealistic. So how it almost kind of it goes both ways. How are you kind of looking to create something artificial that you can actually bring again, that perception of light, that perception of reality into the actual, you know, image creation of that moment. I just actually have a couple of questions for Aaron. We always like to ask, you know, um, who we have on the show, what they have on their walls, what you like looking at. I know that you do, you know, that you draw and you paint. Um, can you tell us about maybe something that you have done that you have hanging on your walls or you have up? Um, well, I have, so I have, a, well, I guess a few things. Um, I have some of my old paintings from college. Uh, I, I got interested in VR painting for a while. So I have a print of one of those. But a lot of the stuff I've been collecting lately are all AI artworks. Um, oh, really? People made by using GANs or earlier stuff. And I kind of, you know, I, I started collecting it for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, I really like it. It's exciting. And also, like, I really um, recognize the role of community in art appreciation and understanding art. So these are people whose, like, work I've written about. I've met them in person. Um, they, you know, they know who I am. And so like, you know, we have back and forth and, you know, and, and so just having that personal connection, I think is, is important to me. And it's really helped me to like, I, I really think about art as a social thing. The reason why we have art is because of social relationships and, you know, collecting and getting to know being part of a community, I think is a big part of that. Oh, I like that. I, I 100% agree. Uh, would you be willing to share maybe a photograph or show us what one of the pieces that you're especially oh, fond of? Oh, great. You oh, just okay, this is one that yes. happens to be, you know, just most physically convenient. To, uh, <laughs> uh, Helena Saren, who is a, um, she was a programmer for a long time and um, she got into AI art. And I think I, I love her style. It's very unique. Like I think a lot of um, AI artists are kind of just pressing the button on a trained model, but she's really like doing her own thing in, in, uh, in her own style and using her own, She's doing her own thing in her own style, you know, using her own images as training data. And it's, she's a very recognizable, unique style that I really like. Who inspires you? I mean, do you have, what artists inspire your own creation of art or maybe your desire to be in the space? Um, it's so hard to, to answer that. So I'll, I'll, I guess I can list a few. Um, so this guy uh, that I mentioned, Rob Pepperell, who's an artist and art professor, like I, I find, I've found his writing um, about art to be very, very inspiring and provoked a lot of thought in me. Um, I think other ones that I've looked at were, um, so I looked, you know, I looked at Wayne Thiebaud and Richard Dibrincorn as ones who, um, to me have, like, like, I look at their images and I think, oh, how does that work? And it, to me, it's sort of very suggestive of how abstraction works in, in uh, paintings. Um, and has like led to a bunch of research ideas. And then Gerhard Richter, the abstract painter is another one who, um, like, I feel like I understand abstraction better and indeterminacy and ambiguity in art a lot better through looking at his works and reading his writing. Well, and, and Gerhard Richter, I mean, is he still alive? Yes. He, he is still alive. Oh, that's amazing. I saw, um, I actually don't remember where I was traveling, but I, I had sort of stumbled across like a like not, not a full retrospective, but like a, a feature on his painting and was really blown away. Uh, this is probably four years ago, like pre-pandemic, um, and was really kind of blown away by sort of how modern he 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 was. I mean, I think isn't he initially from like the 60s, mm -hmm. 60s, 70s? Um, but it was, it was it he his style is is very cool. And I see how actually it sort of it it could feel like it's being produced now. 
Uh, maybe this is a digression, but where where is Dolly going? Like, what what do you think the next year or two is going to look like in these tools? Are they going to be question. more ubiquitous? Easy? Will everyone have them on their computer like automatically? We're going to see this stuff everywhere. Will they get much? Are they still training these things to get better and better, or do they lock it off at some point? Yeah, I think it's hard to, you know, it's, you know, maybe foolish to make concrete predictions, but I think there's a lot of trends that I think are pretty, I can be pretty confident about. One is people are, everyone's working on this now. It's so exciting and everyone recognizes it's exciting. It's a big deal. So there, people are going to be training new models. They're going to be doing new applications in the model. So there are you know, different ways to use it. So just so as previous um you know, iterations, like people applied them to, you know, creating scenes and compositions and image editing and in painting, all that stuff is going to happen with Dolly. We're already uh, immediately in the past, you know, six months, the new papers have come out on different ways to edit images you've already created, uh, edit existing images. So any image editing application you can think of or you might want, someone's going to try to do that with these tools. Um, I think also there's maybe there's going to be a splintering of different tools for different applications. Like even now, some artists love Midjourney and some like Dolly because they have different styles and they're useful for different things and we'll see uh, different applications of them um, i think there's going to be a big grappling with the sort of the ethical implications of these things that are like very murky and very difficult and they're quite complicated um, and there's lots of points of view and a big de uh, debate going on around that um, and in the long term i think our future generations are going to have a different relationship to images than we have today when you know any image could have been made this way when you see a new picture it means something different to you than than it yeah. did to say our ancestors sure our ancestors you like 10 years ago those ancestors who used to think yeah. that a photograph was some sort of uh emblem of veracity that it was journalistic it was proof um unless otherwise told it was going to be like the, the ultimate truth of some situation and now i think it's like looking at a painting you would never say like well that's clearly what happened you know yeah. and um that will change and, you know that's important that no image it can just be taken on face value anymore it, it means nothing to see an image of something i could totally have created it for the purpose of convincing you of something will will we get to that point or is it so biological that when you see an image that looks photorealistic that you have that in immediate chemical uh, response that that is truth, that that was seen. And it's very hard to shake. Even if the caption is, this was made up, you've already walked away with, I feel like that building was on fire last week. I just, I saw it somewhere, you know, mm -hmm. it goes into memory. So we're scored to screwed if that's a biological thing of seeing these pictures, because it doesn't, because you can make them so real and people will have that uh, experience of it, no matter what you say. Right. Yeah. I don't need you to agree to that. I want to hear. I want to hear what Aaron says. <laughs> Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's so hard to, to say. I think you know people have you know, made similar dire threats about previous new technologies, and there's some truth in them, but also culture, society adapts to um, what this new technology is, and it, you know, the people we are not the same people who are the people who are listening to photograph records for the first time a hundred years ago, and 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 um, you know things change quite a bit. Agreed. I mean, I think of the first film from the Lumiere brothers where the train is coming out of the, you know, is coming and people ran from the theater because they thought it was so real. Um, and we, we are not at those times. There's actually there's an interview that Keanu Reeves um, was giving about, you know, the Matrix, you know, re-release. And so he was 
over at a friend's house um, and he had two children and the youngest was like six years old or something and they'd never seen the matrix. And so the, his friend was like, well, can you describe it to them? And so he sort of gives them, you know, high level, like the, basically they wake up in this reality that they thought they were in, they realize isn't real. And the six-year-old said, so what? <laughs> no, is it, is I don't it, care. And, and Keanu Reeves' mind was blown. He's like, wait, what do you mean? Don't you want to know what's real? And she was like, no, it doesn't matter. Uh-oh. Where that, I mean, like, honestly, I think for so many of us, that's, it's like, it's, I'm shook. I'm like, that's so surprising. Like, well, no, I, I want to know what's real. Why do you, why do you not want to know what's real? But then I also look at, you know, for you and I, Ruben, where we don't necessarily agree for me, it doesn't matter if the image is real. It's still powerful. It's still telling that story. It's still, you know, I don't, I don't need that. Um, whereas mm. for you, that that's something that like, it, 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 it really means more. Mm. That Lumiere's brothers reminds me also when people talk about like the opening of Wizard of Oz and you yeah. know we can watch it go from black and white to color and just be like, oh, now it's in color. But trying to imagine the experience of someone who had never <laughs> seen color and what would happen when suddenly the movies that you've all been – you've been watching hundreds of movies or whatever, dozens of movies in your life and suddenly, bam, it's in color. They freaked out. Like that was yeah. magic. And we don't get that anymore. We're at so far from that context. So I'm I'm guessing it's going to be that kind of shift, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, before we wrap up, I, I mean, Aaron, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Where can people see more of your work and your thinking? Um, I We referenced it earlier, but I do highly recommend that people read your uh, your article. I believe it was in the Journal of Vision uh, called "Choices of Cho- the Choices Hidden in Photography. Really, really great article. I think we had an early copy of that. Is that we don't know if that's out yet, right, Aaron? Yeah, it's unpublished. It's still in review. It might be rejected. I mean, who knows? Then I will not. Then I will rephrase (laughs) that. Sorry, cutting redo. I'm sorry. I I have to insert my like my dad who has passed away, but was the president of Arvo, which ran that magazine that he has (laughs) put this in. It's a magazine of vision research, and that was something that my father was really. Uh, supporting like his whole life. So it's cool to see this cool. paper. It's a brilliant paper and it, I, I hope it gets published really in there. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, well, I will redo that so we can cut this out so we're not getting anyone in trouble. Um, well, Aaron, I've really enjoyed chatting with you and hearing your thinking, hearing about your work. Um, where else can people see and read more about your uh, what you're drawing, what you're painting, what you're photographing and what you're thinking? Uh, well, I, I share a lot of my, my sort of informal thoughts on my blog, Um, And I share my uh, drawings in my Instagram and my AI art and my other Instagram. Right, we'll make and what sure- are your Instagram handles? We'll make sure to put them in the show notes. Erin yeah. uh, Hertzman and Erin Hertzman underscore AI art.com. Or uh, sorry, AI, Erin Hertzman underscore AI art. I, I can also share the links. <laughs> yeah, we'll give them the links. They, they'll, that'll be easier for them. Awesome. Perfect. Aaron, I really appreciate your, your waking up this morning to, to, to get together with us. It's a little, it's almost for, for three years we've been doing this. We almost exclusively settle with photographic artists and the occasional gallery curator. It's really cool to have another kind of point of view on this, which is certainly the direction of photography in the future. And um, I, I just don't know if anyone can be a photographer today without having some position about these issues. Um, so yeah, please go to his, his blog. He's a excellent writer. And, um, with that, we will wrap it up. All right. Well, thank you again, Aaron. Uh, our show is recorded and produced in San Francisco and Santa Fe. Go to neomodern.com slash podcast to get show notes, see photos and post comments. 
Don't forget to subscribe on whatever service you're listening to. And please leave reviews and ratings, especially if you like us. <laughs> we get new listeners from you telling your friends and spreading the word. You know someone who might get something from us, send them the link. Thanks to Mitchell Foreman for our theme music, Aaron Hertzman for joining us this morning, and all of you for hanging out with us. We appreciate your attention and hope we've given you some things to think about until next time. <laughs>